Hi, I'm Siggy, born and raised in St. Catharines, Ontario, and now living in the nation's capital of Ottawa. And I'm Jazzy, born in Manila, Philippines, raised in Toronto, Canada, and schooled all over southwestern Ontario. You're listening to the Holo Holo Podcast, a delicious mix of pop culture and the Filipino-Canadian life. Before we start our podcast, we'd like to acknowledge the lands we're podcasting on. I'm podcasting from the traditional lands of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. And I'm podcasting from the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin and Anishinaabeg people. Sigs, it's Hi. a merienda episode. Hi. It is. <laughs> on, today, on today's merienda episode, we discuss Ulam. Appropriately enough, the movie or the documentary, <laughs> as I like to call it. But before we do that, let's catch up. What have you been up to? Two things. Number one, Netflix dropped. And this right now, as we're recording, this is early October. They dropped a show called Emily in Paris, starring Lily Emily Collins, created by Darren Starr with lovely clothing by mm. Patricia Field. It is the great light escape. It is like millennial sex in the city, drawing on younger. If you guys want just some escape, television, beautiful clothes, lots of fun, light and airy. I watched it. It's only eight episodes. Bingeable season, comedic. This American girl gets transferred over to work in Paris and has to deal with her living in France and dealing with the French culture. Jazzy would love it. It's so, it's like eternal spring there. Very funny. And I think as we get older or whatever, this Lily Collins character, Emily, is just trying to figure out what she can do to help out with the brand influence, whether it's through Instagram and social media. This marketing team called Savoir, that's very set in their ways and they're very French. It's very lovely. It's just, it's refreshing. If you want to just zone out and just watch it, it's very Sex in the City. It reminds me of my friend, our friend Tara. I had to text her. I'm like, you need mm. to watch this as my friend Ray. Totally enjoyable and light. It does sound totally up my alley in terms of just fashion alone, I think. Oh, yeah. Wasn't Patricia Fields, like she was the costume designer for like, Clueless and what she also I think she was influenced by Mona May, who was Clueless, and then she evolved, you know, from I think it was Miami Rhapsody, which was with with um, Carrie Bradshaw, with Sarah Jessica Parker, and then she got (laughs) tied in with Sex in the City, and Mm. all her it's it's classic like Carrie, but like I feel like the millennial watch Sex in the City, and it's still parts of it. I almost call it like Sex in the City light, but here's the thing: as we grow older, there's a lovely character named Sylvie who is Emily's boss. She's very French, very sexy. Like, I was just like, whoa, I'm really attracted to this woman. I think she's like in right. her late 40s and she, just very French and just like, we don't do this here in France. Like, what, what are you doing? Why are you being, why are you trying so hard? You don't even speak French? That's really offensive. Like, I just really love the style. And it looked like the venues are amazing. Whether she's at a vineyard, she's out with the girl from the Mean Girls. Uh, what's her name? Ashley Park. Isn't it? Is it? Um, I don't know. You, you're Park. the one with the details. She's a, yeah. And she's uh, she's from Mean Girls or whatever, and she was on Broadway, and she's this uh, au pair she becomes friends with because she you know she needs to have some allies, and she has this neighbor named Gabriel who is like major swoonworthy Kuya. You're probably gonna be like, oh Gabriel, and very French. Mm. Just it's just lovely. It's just a little like an ode. I can't to wait Paris. to check it out. You, you need to check it wait. out. The other thing wait. I'm listening to is um, a podcast with David Tennant. Do you know David Tennant? No, tell me. He was one of the Doctor Hughes, and I remember him okay. from watching Jessica Jones, and he was the evil villain of Jessica Jones. Okay. 
He was really, really great. And it's just called Podcast with David Tennant featuring and then whoever his guest is. And I listened yes. to like Dan Levy from Schitt's Creek was on it. Kush Jumbo from The Good Yay. Fight was on it. And yeah, it's so and weird to wife, hear yes. um, Kush in her accent speaking yeah, and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fantastic like discussions on diversity, like media, like pop culture. And like Kush is I think she's playing. She left the good fight. She went back to to the UK, and she was in a play playing Hamlet. And David's yes. like, "Is this like a turn on it?" She's like, "No, I'm playing him as a guy." And it's very interesting. Mm. And she talks about intersectionality and really, really good conversation. But my favorite interview was with T- like he interviews like Judy Dench and stuff. But he interviews <laughs> Tina Fey, and he she, Tina wow. Fey brings up something where the prime minister, a previous prime minister from the UK, is it David Cameron? called her and said, hi, can we have a conversation? And Tina's like, okay. And this is when she was on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt developing it. And she's like, right. what, what can I do for you? The UK prime minister wanted her to come to the, the UK to talk to TV producers on why shows should be longer, not just six episodes. <laughs> and I kid you not, Tina Fey is oh loving. She goes, um, I don't, um, I see what you're saying there, but we want to copy your model how your people are doing these wonderful, like, simple 10 episodes. She goes, Ricky Gervais only did so many episodes of The Office, and he's making tons of money. And in the United States, we made 8 zillion episodes of The Office. Right. That's not what I want to do. So it was really funny, and I just thought that little point would be something that you'd love to tune into just to hear. She's like, David like, are you serious? The UK prime minister called you for that? She's like, I know, exactly. But apparently um, Steve Levitan from Modern Family went and, like, gave them, like, a discussion about it. But I'm dying laughing because we're like, sometimes you don't need 22 episodes. You just need a couple, right? (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. And if you think about it, like, how many times have we heard of all those TV shows in the 90s and 2000s Mm -hmm. where... 20 episodes, 22 episodes, and there was a bunch of filler episodes. Absolutely. Like now, mind you, some of those have been really great and unique episodes because there were certain, if you will, parameters or restrictions. We mm-hmm. think about that famous one for Friends when they were going off to Ross's... Black tie event. Or something? Yeah. yeah, black tie event. <laughs> some words for anthropologists or something yeah. like that. You know, and they had to all film just only in, on one particular soundstage and one particular set. Bottle episode? Like yeah. The, yeah, yeah, and and that ended up being like one of the best episodes and stuff. But you're right, like they are really short. I will say this though, it is a pet peeve of Michael's. He loves British TV, but he's like, <laughs> I want more. He's left wanting more. So I, I can't wait to listen to this. This is uh, David Tennant. He was like, like the second to last Doctor Who. I'm not a big Doctor Who follower, but no, uh, neither is that, am is I. That who but he is? I, I remember him from Jessica Jones, and he played this very psychological yeah. villain, mm. this very persuasive person. I, I totally right. forget what his name was. But it was just very intriguing, and I love his accent. Just the brogue mm. is lovely, and for yeah. Tina Fey to sort of talk about this, and he talks about everything. And the other, I'm like, is this Judy Dench he's talking to? And it's just great conversations, and for that little like tidbits of pop culture, I think it'd be right up your alley. What have you been yeah, up to, pop culture wise? What have I been up to? Well, three things. One is is that we just finished off Umbrella Academy season two. Yes, we finally finished this. Loved it. Loved Mm -hmm. it. And it's kind of like, ooh, like they saved the world. But it's kind of like we're now in a different timeline. So, Michael. So, of course, I'm here telling Michael about different universes again. (laughs) And and kind of looking at different threads of time. And he's like, I don't get it, but that's okay. So now it's like, okay, now waiting around for season three. So I have no idea when season three is coming out. Ditto. Years time. Yeah. You know more than us because they shoot near you anyway, right? 
Well, that is true. That is true. And I will say this, that in the pandemic, some of the film studios here in Toronto have restarted or resumed filming again. So I don't know exactly how they're doing that, but uh, I'm sure that there's doing major testing and major contact tracing if need be. And people are in bubbles and stuff like that. So I don't even want to know what the logistics are are like. Mm -hmm. But the other two things, I've actually pivoted more towards Filipino fare these days. And so I been watching this one show off of YouTube by Globe Studios ever since we were talking about the BL series Hello Stranger uh-huh. from our last episode. Of course, YouTube just now keeps sending me like recommendations of other <laughs> BL series to watch, especially Filipino ones. So one by Globe Studios is hashtag Gaya Sa Pelikula, which really means like in the movies in ah. English is what that means. So hashtag Gaya Sa Pelikula. It's again, an, it's another BL series about opposites attract. And, mm-hmm. you know, the conceit is, is, is that they're next door neighbors and they run into each other and they have to help each other out and then of course the budding <laughs> romance occurs yeah. and so it's currently streaming Fridays 8pm Philippines time I, I believe and which means that it comes out Friday 8am Eastern Standard Time here in the North American time zone but of course I, I usually watch it like Saturday mornings and stuff like that so I'm already three episodes in so now it's just like I don't even know how long this ride is going to be I don't even know if it's like eight episodes or ten episodes or <laughs> fifteen episodes but I have to tell you YouTube is smart it just keeps sending off all these you know recommendations of all these BL series if you like this you'll like, like this. this and it's like yeah and as they said on the Netflix social dilemma don't trust the recommendations but I'm so Ooh. seduced by them so <laughs> So I can't, I can't stop watching these BL series. And I was talking about it with my mom and my mom and I are just howling because she's like watching and revisiting all these old teleserias on oh, YouTube no as well. I know, I know. And it's like, but the teleserias in the Philippines, like, you know, there are 300 episodes for oh this one series. Yeah, I know. And so it's kind of like, that's a lot of TV watching. And some of the teleserias are so repetitive that they keep stretching things out that it's like enough. Like, can you get me a condensed version? So <laughs> the other thing that I've been watching is actually on Amazon Prime and uh-huh. it's called Discovering Roots, which is kind of like a play on words. So it's you know, its actual title is Discovering Roots, R-O-U-T-S, uh, as opposed to R-O-O-T-S. And it stars this tech entrepreneur, his name is Garrett Gee, and him and his family have blog and Instagram channel, a YouTube channel called The Bucket List Family. Mm-hmm. And basically, he and his family have gone traveling all around the world pursuing their bucket lists, you know, supposedly. And this had occurred, I guess, in and around the time he sold off Scan. And he's the guy that all those QR codes that you would scan with yes. your phone. He was basically the inventor of that app that eventually was taken on by Snapchat. And interestingly enough, goes to the Philippines and rediscovers his heritage as he travels through the Philippines with his sister, Maristi. It's actually quite, this is what's really intriguing. Garrett's bicultural, so he's Caucasian and Filipino, and presumably the same thing with his sister. He's like, you know, one of five siblings and step-siblings and so forth and so on. And yet he doesn't have much exposure to Philippine culture like the way you and I do. So everything is brand new to him. Everything is brand new from the food Uh to the language to the land. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought, wow, what Mm -hmm. is this guy's life about? 
I have no idea. Like, I have no idea how he grew up, except that he grew up in Utah, went to bring Brigham Young. Eventually, he's also a Latter-day Saint. And so Garrett went to Russia for a missionary mission and then met the love of his life there and then eventually went traveling with their two kids around the world, but uh-huh. at the same time sold off his tech invention for $54 million, believe Holy it or not. Holy smokes! I know, and like his family's worth like eighty million. But what is just incredible to me is, is is that, you know, he you can tell he's bicultural, but at the same time, it's like oh, but you had no influence. Like there's been no Philippine influence or touch with it, you know. And I know Chicken. that somewhere halfway through, we meet his mother. Mm-hmm. But my guess is is that his mother's the first generation, so I'm guessing that he's second generation, if not even third generation Filipino American. Hmm for that matter. It's really interesting. Like it, and it made me just think, I'm like, oh, like this is the first time I've met someone who identifies as Filipino, but has not had much exposure to our culture whatsoever. So it was interesting to see him kind of, and his sister take on Filipino culture. So that's why I mean like discovering roots. It's a play on, on words, at least the roots part, right? It's not only just their travels through the Philippines, but really rediscovering his heritage. The fascinating part is he's like a water baby too. Like he loves the water. He loves the ocean. We're island people. And so you're constantly by water. We're constantly by water. You know, Mm -hmm. you end up loving water, at least most of us do, or some of us do. I don't know what the (laughs) proportions would be. But it was just kind of interesting. Like just culturally wasn't exposed to it. And I thought, oh, this is kind of, interesting. you know, it made me think about kind of like my nephews and nieces, what their children will be like. And I was thinking maybe that's what they'll be like. And I, and I was thinking to myself, oh, I hope my nephews and nieces take their kids eventually to the Philippines, regardless, again, whether you speak the culture or not. And it just made me think about, again, how does culture get transmitted to the next generation? And it made me just think for ourselves, our parents that are constantly reminding us of our culture. But once you start to get removed, how else do you get parts of the, that culture transmitted to you. So it just made me think even further about that. Very intriguing. I'm going to put that. Is that, so Amazon Prime has this, Discovering Roots. Yeah, Discovering Roots, Amazon Prime. The interesting part too is it's produced by ABS-CBN Studios, oh. right? Which is a Philippine uh, outlet. So they, I guess, partnered with ABS-CBN and then mm. they've just probably scout located all these places in the Philippines. You know, mm. some of the places I recognize, it was like, oh, yeah. look, there's that wet market that we went to in Cebu City. And mm. it's like, I've been there before. And it was like, oh, I recognize all of that. And yet they were just kind of experiencing all of this stuff. And it was just amazing. Like not even the food, they didn't even know what they were eating. They were like, it was all brand new to them. And I just thought, that's wow. an interesting like, experience. Like, what are yeah, the, yeah? How I, I was like thinking, them, yeah, like talk about as we've always said, being Filipino and and not being monolithic. And clearly, he says his heritage is being Filipino, and yet has had little influence with respect to food, at least, and other parts of the culture. So, anyways, I tried to do a bit of research on him, but there's not much. Like, it's the same kind of PR yeah. sentences that you see throughout in different articles and different, mm-hmm. even in the Wikipedia entries and stuff like that. In fact, there's not even a Wikipedia entry, but there's references to him through Snap and Scan and all these, that one app that he ended up selling to Snapchat. So when you get a moment, you should check it out. It's, I think it's, I'm going it's to. really just interesting, right? Like yeah. it's, it's something that you can watch on a Saturday afternoon if you don't have much to do. So speaking of other like Filipino Americans <laughs> on this Merienda episode, we're solely focusing on Ulam, the movie. And it's really a documentary. It's a no narration documentary by Alexandra Cuerdo on the possible emergency 
emergence of Filipino food in the North American food scene. And it's been told by various Filipino American chefs, and I can't remember the names of any of them. And so I'm going to really rely on Sings. Oh, to, I, to- <laughs> it's so funny because there's so many great examples. And I, after watching this movie, I follow some of like the restaurants and some of the chefs in it. And like, seriously, and I apologize or whatever. I'm sure we're going to put links for Ulam or whatever, but I totally follow egg sluts. And one of the yes, chefs yes, has yes. Egg sluts, and these amazing sandwiches with eggs. And I never remember his name. I always think egg slut of him. And <laughs> Nina, I know Nicole Ponsica is the one that I think of the most because you really, really focus on her um, restaurants and stuff. But I just, we'll talk more about it. This movie is an immersive experience to, us who are Filipino and the culture, but I'll, I'll let you uh, segue into it. So, yeah. 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 So again, told by a number of Filipino American chefs, they, they seem to be either first or second, if not third generation. Right. Mm-hmm. I remember this film, like you and I were talking about it and I, you know, I missed the chance of seeing it here when it came and circulated during the, the real Asian international film festival here in Toronto is when it came. And that was around about like November of 2018, but it had been circulating in that time. And I remember you and I were looking for it and again, never got to go. But it's really interesting because it's called Ulam, the movie, and it says like as one of its taglines, main dish. And it made me really think about like, what is the actual definition of Ulam? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I looked it up. I, I just had to double check and it's actually entree or main dish. Right. But for me, what's been fascinating is every time I heard the word Ulam, I automatically think of it as food, you know, and I don't know if you've done that too in terms of your own vocabulary and what does that say about us? Like I've never thought of it as a main dish in in a lot of ways. I equate it to food. And even when I watch this movie, even when you say the word ulam, I do not hear you say the word ulam. I hear my mom Susie do say the word (laughs) ulam. It is a discussion with my parents, even to this day, how we lay out our schedules and what is the uniting focus of our family when we sit down to eat. It is a strong family ritual. Like my mom would always even like, what's your ulam today? And even now my mom touch bases with me and says, Anak, what's for dinner? What is your ulam? Did you defrost manok? Iho, you got a good price on ista. Good for you. It's food, but to me it's more of the ritual. Like it's that sit down dinner. Like what is the ulam? What are we what is the main, not just the entree or the theme of like, what are you guys sitting down to this evening? And I really like you highlight that point. What does that say about our experiences? Like Ulam to me is just is the ritual of us as a family sitting down and talking about our day and how we all unite every single day when we can when I was growing up. And now I do with my family, with my kids and my wife. I find it just like this cultural or a family unity thing of like we sit down what our ulam is the meal in front of us and us connecting ulam has that feeling of connection for Mm -hmm. you and your family and i would say the same for myself as well that there is indeed a feeling of connection for my family i just think it's interesting that when i think about ulam of course it's probably much more easier to say ulam as opposed to baka'in (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So paka'en is actually how you say food in Tagalog, if memory serves me correct. Right. And so it's like, hmm, meron ka yung ulam? You know, in other words, do you have any food or meron ka yung paka'en? Right. Do you have yeah. any food? But it's interesting because when you say, you know, do you have any 
food versus do you have any main dish? dish? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, or do you have any entrees? So then it's just, it made me think to myself, oh, that's interesting. If I've actually not distinguished between paka and, and ulam, ulam and made ulam less than itself, because main dish means a centerpiece of sorts, doesn't it? Or it does. it's something that's to be ordered. So... I've learned to not think of Filipino food as an entree or as a main dish. And I just thought, huh, that's fascinating. You know, like that I don't think of it as a main dish that could be served at a restaurant in some ways because I've made, again, ulam synonymous with baka'in instead. That's such an interesting concept. Yeah, I agree with you. I wonder too if any of our North American Philippinex listeners out there, Filipino, Filipinas listeners out there also have had that same experience of making those two words practically synonymous with each other because, you know, I think that that kind of makes a difference. And that's kind of what this documentary does too. It really focuses on Filipino food as being the entree or the main dish. And interesting that we don't think of it, or I've come to not think of it as, as a main dish. So I'm, I'm kind of like curious to know what your impressions are of this entire documentary. I know for myself, I, it felt like it was a passionate plea to non-Filipinos, Filipinos in the diaspora. And I thought specifically, especially first-generation Filipino parent in terms of thinking of Filipino food as something that can be served at a restaurant, not a takeout restaurant, but a restaurant. And it was really kind of aiming at parents in some ways, in just very sideways, interesting pleas to parents. I don't know if you thought similarly. I totally agree with you because you had a lot of the chefs discuss what their parents' expectations were, and they were going veering off from the doctor, lawyer, and and how they wanted to have their food reach many. And you make a good point about it being restaurants, not takeout, because we just talked about food is emblematic of our culture, and it's also a ritual, a gathering together of people to go and enjoy yes. the food. And that you just made right. a really good point. It was more about restaurants and not pickup. Also, like the way that Alexandra really focused on like Filipino food being like an underdog. Right. You really saw that, like. Those were my first impressions when I saw it. Like, and I found that also it was interesting. Like they were talking about big food scenes. Like we weren't talking like little areas. We're talking about in LA and NYC where they were hitting. Like, right. These areas. Yeah. Cause I was just like, you know, we could, I mean, in Canada it would be like Toronto or whatever, but they really focused on New York city with yeah. Jeepney and in LA with Alvin Kailan, who, who does, who does egg slut and stuff. And yes. um, New York city. It's just, those groundbreaking things. But it really was interesting, the point of it's a restaurant. We're trying to build a restaurant here to come in and eat, be part of that ritual. And it was an experience, whether it be the decor in Nicole Ponsica's restaurants in Jeepney and showing parts of our culture. It was that like immersive experience. And even the way really coming in and trying to understand it. like, And this opens up so many doors and so many questions, which I know we'll talk more about. This is food that we should, that should be catching on. It's not new food. Like we, we've it's been out here for a while. Food. Yeah. Yeah. It's not you food or it's food done in a very particular style or food done very with a particular flavor or a certain region being reflected in the Philippines. 
but it's certainly focused on the restaurant industry or the foodie scene, I think, as we would yeah. probably call it today. And that reflection on why Filipino food is not more mainstream. And it raised really interesting reasons, like the crab mentality is the reason why that sometimes the Filipino food is not more mainstream. So meaning other Filipinos are not very happy for other Filipino success or Filipino <laughs> restaurateurs success. Right. The one that I absolutely thought was compelling as a reason as to why Filipino food is not more mainstream is this idea of memories. And again, I can't remember the, the name of the chef that focused on that, but saying that when other Filipinos come to taste Pino, other Filipino food and in restaurants, not takeouts, but yep. restaurants, you can't help but have an association to your own household memories growing up. And that that taste is primed already. And so ultimately, your expectation of the Filipino food when you go to the restaurant yeah. automatically decreases. And then you think, you know, Filipinos think, oh, I can make this myself and even better, when really it's just an adherence to your memory of what adobo needs to taste like, or palabok needs to taste like, or any of these other Filipino dishes, which I thought, oh, that's a clever way of saying how regionalism has stopped Filipinos from supporting Filipino restaurants. And I thought, oh, fascinating. It totally hooked me in. And I thought that that was a really simple but powerful way of understanding why Filipino foods haven't even gone mainstream in terms of our own culture with respect to the food scene or the foodie scene or the restaurant scene in contrast to, you know, Filipino takeout. And then kind of what you were talking about just a little bit earlier, the lack of nobility associated with the industry that... The one character from Rice Bar talking about he was expected to be a doctor, a lawyer, or architect, yeah. one of those noble professions, and thinking to himself, or his parents thinking to himself, that we've traveled all this way for you to do something that would be considered low means work back even in the Philippines itself. And I just thought, oh, these are all interesting reflections as, as to why the restaurant scene and taking on Filipino food isn't much more well-supported by our own community. So I don't know if you have anything to add to that kind of long analysis. If no, I, I, I find it really interesting. And as, as we talk about this more, those who are listening, if you haven't had a chance to see this movie, like we'll put the links in there. Really, yeah. It's, it's eye opening. It's very appealing to all of us because it really touched a lot about our diaspora, like cultural background. There was, it, there's so many points you could just sit there with your mouth open, not just because you're hungry from looking at these the gorgeous mm -hmm. setups and the beauty of the food that was filmed, but Oh, where you can identify with these stories, first generations and stuff like I identified with. And yeah, and there was fun little things that they leaned into I thought was interesting because when people think of Filipino food, everyone thinks of that fear factor challenge about eating balut, yes. right? Yes, if you're not yes, familiar yes. with balut, it's a duck egg that's not fully yes. grown and people eat it and you have it with a really good beer. And it was always made famous in that stupid fear factor where they'd showed all these little ducklings to the contestants and all of a sudden they would have to eat balut. I think it was Jeep Nini and Ponsika's thing. They'd say, you're having bullet. They would yell it out loud and you, they'd give you a beer and they'd say, enjoy it. Just taste it. But it's not just about that. It was just really leaning into, it's not for your It's tasty. It's a delicacy. You know what I mean? It's before when people used to say, ooh, sushi's raw fish. Like mm -hmm. I always had that line. And how trendy is it now? And I don't think they really talk about it. And Jez, from your own experience, I remember bringing adobo to school. Adobo, we've talked about this before. We love adobo 
combo. And there's a I very don't, robust don't smell with vinegar, yes. soy sauce, and garlic. It's very strong. Yes. And I remember bringing mm. it and I had a little bit and I was like, oh my God, I hope it doesn't get too cold because you want to have the sauce with the rice, the cotton in, and right. my little drumstick. And I want to, and I had yes. a classmate just look at me like with their wrinkled, what's that? What's that smell? And I'm like, it's yeah. delicious. And, you know, I was sort of embarrassed. I'm like, well, whatever. I still like it. And now when I see the birth of all these Filipinos restaurants and these recipes and our friends like, oh, I really love the adobo. I'm like, wow, the stinky food that people did not like that I brought to school is very trendy and very likable. Like everyone wants yeah, to have it. Just, it. It demonstrates that certain food profiles weren't acknowledged back then, at least certainly when we were going to school with our little baon, you know, yeah. <laughs> eating adobo and rice while everyone was having a ham sandwich. Here's Peanut Jesse butter and, and jelly. Yeah, you and me. Yeah, with while we're eating our little container of rice and adobo or whatever our parents would pack. And then over time, I had insisted just to kind of avoid those reactions and stuff like that. But now these days, it's like, it is interesting. Oh, I've heard about adobo. What is that? I've had my friend Tanya say, you know, I'd like to taste some Filipino adobo. And I'm like, yeah, I'll have to make that one day and then drop it off in your content. Absolutely. Because I can't see anybody in this pandemic. But I think if anything, this whole popularization just has to do with the fact that people are being exposed to things that they haven't been exposed to before. Now, you had just mentioned a little bit earlier about how beautiful some of the stuff was. Oh. I just was thinking to myself, the food porn it was just so fun and surprising and wonderful to see all of Filipino food being plated in a very Western style or French style. And I just thought, oh, that's so great. Because at one point it was like, oh, that's Palabuk or... Oh, that's seasick, right? And it's like, I didn't recognize it at first and then realized, oh, it just, it looks like something you'd get at a French restaurant, but it's with Filipino flavors and flair. You and I are both thinking of the same one. It's just stacked beautifully. You have a circular round of rice and then you have yes. like a piece of lechon or whatever that's hashed and then right. grained and then, or the palabok, the one that you did, it's sprinkled so beautifully. I feel like yeah. there should be like seasons played by in the background. You know what I mean? Right. And they're just garnishing it. And it looked beautiful. And even like it's when they had the so meat and the lechon and they're just cutting it up and prepping it. I'm like, I wish there was like this was like smelly vision because the mm. prep in it and the garlic and the I don't know which restaurant it was or whatever. But they had all the dips that you can choose from for the lumpia. Yes, like it was just like a feast for the senses. Yeah, I think was that was there. the Amboy yeah. one in, Amboy. in New York City. Yes. Yeah, all of it made me want to visit all these restaurants. So it was like, mm -hmm. oh, would this pandemic end? And then I'm going to just, my, Michael and I are just going to visit all these different places in these major food scenes in North America. I think to myself, as I visit these places, I also need to kind of take the medicine that they're giving us, which is really to suspend our own preconceptions on what Filipino food should be, you mm -hmm. know, because those memories and the regionalism work against actually celebrating what these Filipino American restaurateurs are doing. Some of the other thoughts, though, that I had about this documentary documentary was Kamayan and the trendiness. And it was just kind of like, oh, it's interesting how it was described as the Filipino version of a luau. And I'm just thinking to myself, but we're all like Pacific Islanders, aren't exactly. we? Or at least we probably all came from Malaysians and Polynesians <laughs> thinking to myself, you know, I don't know if it's like us copying the Hawaiians or the Hawaiians copying us, but it all probably came from one place anyway, as far as I'm concerned. So I don't know if you had any thoughts. I, I totally agree. That. No, I was going to say that. I'm like, isn't it we're all sort of from the same place? And I have a lovely friend, as Suzanne and her husband, and I think they went 
to Hawaii. I don't know. I want to say they went to the Philippines too. And they said they had the best time at a Kamayan. And they were talking to one of the owners that was eating with them. And they go, Siggy, the guy was just using two fingers. But he ate so expertly. And it was just like yes. beautiful. This dipping two fingers. He goes, eat like this. And like Suzanne and her husband, I think Adam, they were just trying to copy it. And they're like, it is just delicious. Like the food even it takes it better. years to eat like that. Yeah. And they were just it, like, it was just yeah. gorgeous. Like rice and beautiful pineapples. And then the banana leaves. So fresh. So tasty. It was just an experience, the Kamayan. And I want to say it was both, they were in Hawaii and in the Philippines. I, I could be wrong. Suzanne, you can correct me if you want, if you're listening to this. But yeah, tell they us. really enjoyed that experience, the Kamayan. They thought it was so amazing. They're like, screw the chopsticks for like, you know, Chinese food. She goes, we want Filipino food where we can just get right in there. You know, totally. So. <laughs> My mom actually is quite expertly driven in terms of eating with her hands as well. And yeah. so every time we go up to Pangasinan, and it's usually Kamayan, right? Mm-hmm. And my mom just eats so beautifully and gracefully. And it's, of course, that's how she ate growing up. I just haven't been able to pick it up. I'm a little bit much more clumsier and it's probably a function of practice and stuff like that. And my cousins back yeah. in Pangasina would also eat so beautifully. and They would all just giggle when I would eat with my hands and it's stuff just a, like that. But so. like, you know what, whether it's your mom or my mom, you know, when they have like the sabao in like a pot and they're just trying to yes. get the little, I don't know how my mom's yes. delicate fingers, she's just right in there getting like a little chunk of rice and then just seeping it up without even a mask because I'm like did you scrub this pan she's like no that was because I come my in it I'm like no offense mom I'm yes, not trying to yes. tease you I just it just it, it no, looks so it like classic just, right I- it is respect and admiration and <laughs> a little bit of jealousy, I think, on both I our know, parts, right? Because I can't eat that way, you yeah. know? And it's like, where's my fork and spoon, right? But I really <laughs> need to kind of practice a little bit more in terms of how to eat that way. Totally. I think, though, that for me, one of my favorite lines in the entire documentary was just hearing how Filipino food is very much one has infinite memories. And again, I can't remember exactly who said that in the documentary, but this idea that, you know, you close your eyes and everything you ever think about is like Filipino food. You and I both grew up with Filipino food and any chance I get to have Filipino food, I'll certainly have it. And oh, I just love homemade cooking, like lutong bahay, mm. uh, Filipino food or paka. And, and I just think to myself, yes, when I think about some of my favorite memories and I have infinite memories of it's usually eating Filipino food. It's some great. Of that, so. And it's even like, it's even geared in some of like the cookbooks. I bought several of my friends, the cookbook memories of a Filipino kitchen and, mm, and they yes. love it. And even like friend of the podcast, Natasha, they did a focus on exploring Filipino kitchens and that's the name of a podcast. And even the book it's, recipes and the memories tied to these things. I, it, it's very much, I agree with you, very much linked to the memories that, that people experience. It adds much more to this eating, this ritual yeah. of eating. The other thing that I was thinking about in <clears throat> terms of this documentary is its thesis, which I think its thesis is, is that Filipinos in the diaspora need to elevate and praise Filipino food that's being served in restaurants. Again, in contrast to takeouts, I can't help but keep talking about that because I think sometimes when we think about Filipino foods, we do think of like the typical Filipino takeout bar. But really what we're talking about here and what this documentary talks about is restaurants and that they need to be elevated and that we may actually be part of the reasons why it has taken so long for the Filipino foods to be mainstreamed. And, you know, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but I just thought to myself, 
Go ahead. Go, go, ahead. go ahead. I... I really like this point that you bring up, and I'm going to bring up an example. I've mentioned before, I have friends that live in Montreal, my friend Renee and her husband, Derek, who's a chef. And I always wanted to go to Junior Filipino in Montreal. And I was talking mm. to my friends of the committee, Wesley, Yen, Jeff, and Renee, and I said, oh, the next time we go, I really would like to go to Mon- Junior. And Renee goes, oh, there's another Filipino restaurant that opens. It's very in and all that stuff. And Yen and Wesley made a comment, and this is not an argument or whatever, but they both said, what's the point of doing that? Like, you have Filipino food. And the conversation stopped because we ended up changing it. And it sort of bugged me because I'm like, what's the point of it? And I didn't get to say it. And I'm going to say it right now. And Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. point of going is there is to support the people in my job. Filipinos, I'm giving them a prop. I heard about your food. Your food's amazing. I want to have lechon right now. And I want to support that. I want to be part of that and show support that, yes, I want to go to your restaurant and I want to experience your food. That's why it's important. And I was sort of mad because I was like, oh, I didn't get to address this when we were talking because our subjects changed. And I'm like, it is important. Yeah, I am Filipino, but I want to support. I want to see that type of food out there. It sounds amazing. And the work that they do and the things that I see and the rave reviews I've heard from Junior. Heck, yeah, I want to go. And I love that. Renee's like, I've had some really good adobo and it was at Junior. It was fantastic. And there was Kamaya night and... It's just really cool. It's those opportunities. I know you and I talked about like raising and elevating and poppy syndrome. We want to go out there in our combines and really lift them up to be like, I really enjoy your food. It's amazing. Yeah. And it's really distinguishing it from homemade lutong bahay versus an experience of Filipino food told through a very particular lens. And I just think to myself, oh, and I think as Filipinos, sometimes we're guilty of thinking I can make this better at home or I can, it's much more cheaper if I make this. And those two things are true. But that's not why you go to a Filipino restaurant. Mm -hmm. You go to a Filipino restaurant to kind of experience exactly that, an experience with Filipino food. So there's a sociality that's associated with it. Perhaps there's a different regional taste or a different expression of taste or a combination of tastes. But at the end of the day, it's this experience as opposed to the food itself. And it's so hard to kind of separate those things out. Mm -hmm. But it just made me think, oh, like what we have... You know, when we're at home, it's in. But when you go to a Filipino restaurant, like the ones that were profiled <laughs> in Ulam, they're Ulam that were Absolutely. actually being served Ulam. And which, you know, kind of brings us back to the original point that I was making is needing to kind of separate those two things out. The other question or thesis that they were talking about, too, was being mainstream. And I think that they were talking about mainstream in terms of the foodie scene. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking to myself, too, that mainstream is actually when we start seeing Filipino chains in food courts in North American malls. And I'm not talking about like Jollibee or any of those other chains like Max's of Manila or anything (laughs) like that. You know, like just other different types of North American based Filipino food chains. And I think once that happens, I think that's when we're truly mainstream in terms of our culture and our food. But I'll tell you what I wish. What? This is what I wish for. And then I want to know what you wish for, because that's kind of what this documentary made me do is wish. It made me wish for more food trucks, the Filipino snacks, more Filipino restaurants and a snack. Like I was thinking to myself, oh, I hope someone opens up a Filipino snack bar, snack bar restaurant. I totally agree with you. And friends to the podcast, Rechi Valdez, she's part of Crane Express in Toronto and Mississauga. Yes, Crane Express, yes. And that's they right. have lots, like, I was like, I want, can Jesse send me like a hollow hollow, like all the way to, <laughs> it's not going to keep well. And that's why I was it's like, it's not going to keep well. It's not going to keep well, too. And I was just like, oh, I really want to experience though, because out in Ottawa, I really wish we had the Marianda food truck, which I didn't get to take you, and they closed. 
because of pandemic. And they had adobo balls. Little balls, oh rice gosh. balls stuffed yeah. like, with adobo in it. I was like, this is really smart. And then they had staples, right? They had wonderful hollow hollow with a huge piece of leche plan and ube. It was delicious. Mm. And it was a great buy to, to get. I love taking my parents there. And I'm like, oh, it's sustainability is a little bit harder here in Ottawa. And we had a lovely family restaurant called Catamilia. And they were yeah. lovely people. And they were, when mm. we went to eat there, I think it was for my birthday a couple of years ago, they were like, you know, tweet about us, talk about us. And unfortunately, they weren't able to sustain either. And they did so many good things for people. Like at Christmas time, they opened up and gave food to wow. the needy and stuff. And they were just wonderful so nice. people. Um, right now, I hopefully we'll talk about this on a further episode. There is a guy named he's B-Boy13. I follow him on Instagram. And he has Lola's Kitchen. And he's doing a lot of mm. pop-up clients. And I'm going to order from him like, later fun. in November. It's really cool. He's doing really great stuff. They did a 90s night and he, he's serving people, but socially distanced and only a few people at a time. And he's doing it in the market. Mm. And he's been very busy and people are ordering from him. That and sounds become, so fun. Yeah, just gorgeous stuff. And I think like some people, they had like a proposal, but he set up these beautiful banana leaves and made like heart-shaped pineapples and put the food in there for people to enjoy. So he's coming big. Lola's Kitchen. I'll put him in the, the tag up. But Yeah, put him in the... Absolutely. Yeah, put that in the, the show notes. I was going to say, like, these Merienda episodes, they're really snack size episodes to get you to the main episode. But I was going to say, and typically we don't have culture capital topics or we don't necessarily have any fixings of the week. But I had just have to say that in terms of what's next, we got to continue to elevate Filipino food. I think when we go to Filipino restaurants, again, to distinguish them from Filipino takeout places, we got to suspend our expectations or these regional superiority ideas. And we got to visit these places when the pandemic is over. I have been to Crane Express. We were there actually for MB's, our editor's birthday. So she just wanted a hollow hollow. So we traveled out to one up by Yorkdale on Orphis Road, oh, or near nice. Orphis Road, I think it was. So Sigs, when you when this pandemic is over, you're in town, I'm going to take you to We're going to go there. Rachi, we're coming out for, sure. for you. We're going to come see you. That's for right, sure. Rachi. <laughs> for sure. So I, I think that takes us to the end. Yeah, that totally takes us to the end, Sigs. So take us out on this merienda episode. I hope you found this episode tasty. And guys, we want to hear from you. If you watched Ulam the movie, and tell us, where do you get great Filipino eats? Jesse and I want to know. And all you listeners all around the world listening, to us, whether it's the Philippines, Germany, India, Australia, United States, and in Canada. Tell us. Email us. Tweet at us. You can email us at holoholopopculture at gmail.com and you can find us on Twitter at holoholopop and on Instagram at holoholopopculture. Finally, we receive editorial feedback from Mary Beth Badian. Our musical theme is by Chel Turingan. We'll see all of you guys again soon. See ya.